Amen. As we're turning to 2 Corinthians 1, please, for a reading this morning, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 11. And I'm going to ask Sarah Preston if she would just come now and read that for us, please. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are all in all Achaia, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Who comfort or blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual and enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength in so much that we despaired even of our life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from such a great death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust, that he will not deliver us, Yea, also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Thank you, Sarah, and we know the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful verses, Lord. We thank you for the truth contained in them, Lord. We pray that you would bless us now as we come to consider them. We ask too that you would bless the folks in the children's church, Lord, the young ones, and those who would lead it, Lord, that they would be blessed as well as they would listen to your word, Lord. And we ask that we would be open, Lord, to receive all that you would have to say to us this morning. We ask these things, Lord, in your precious and holy name. Amen. So, folks, I want to introduce you to someone this morning. Uh, hopefully this comes up. Uh, no, the guys can maybe put it up for me, the first one. Yep. So this is, uh, this is Blue Ted, uh, not surprisingly. Um, Blue Ted was my first ever Teddy. Uh, many of us remember, or at least have some sort of recollection, of our first and favorite Teddies, because often they were more than just a toy. They were a comfort. They were soft. They were cuddly. They were huggable. And probably most significantly, they were always there. Even when our parents left the room, quite often our teddy stayed beside us, sometimes even in the bed with us, quite possibly <clears throat> the only permanent fixture in our young lives at that young stage of development. So it's not surprising that when a child loses their favorite toy or their favorite teddy, it can be pretty traumatic. You see photos on Facebook from frantic parents going, have you seen this bear? As they search high and low for some scruffy looking little animal. But to the child, it means absolutely everything because they've become attached to it. And before you become attached to that picture, I'm going to take it off there so we don't all get distracted. We can all become attached. 
In our early years, it's toys. Then maybe later, it's a, a bike or a car, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. And then our own children. We naturally become attached to them. We're attached to our parents. We're maybe attached to our job, a particular title, a specific role that you have within the church, a friendship. And suddenly that thing becomes your comfort. That attachment becomes the thing that defines you. It becomes almost like your measuring stick for success and, and happiness. As long as that thing's okay, I'm okay. It's the thing that makes you who you are, the thing that brings you contentment. You couldn't imagine life without it, nor would you even want to. The passage Sarah read for us speaks a lot about comfort. It's not the comfort found in family or friendship or finances. It's the comfort found in God. You see, like a child, we can become attached to things that aren't God. Wonderful things. Things like our children, our relationships, our responsibilities. And in many ways, we should become attached to them. You don't want to detach yourself from your family or your job or, or those things that are important in life. But if those things are all that ever bring you comfort, if those things are all that ever defines you, then what will you do if and when those things are taken away? That's not something we like to think about. It's not nice to think that our children will grow up and leave or that someday your ministry won't be needed or your spouse will no longer be by your side. But folks, that's the reality. 1 Peter 1.24 says, All flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, and the flower faileth. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but that which is not seen is eternal. And I'm not going to ask this morning what you're attached to. It's good to be attached to what matters. Family, friends, the church. But I am going to ask, what is your comfort? Where is your comfort? What are you actually resting in? What's the thing that you check every day, your litmus test, if you like, to make sure everything's going to be okay? Because if your comfort, your dependence, your rock isn't the Lord, then you're resting on something that won't last. And like the child that loses the toy, you'll have nothing to cling on to. But if your comfort is the Lord, if you're resting in His care, if you're placing all of those other attachments on Him, with God as the foundation, genuinely trusting them into His hand, then your comfort will remain no matter what else happens around you? It's an important question. What are you resting in this morning? Where's your comfort? This is message number six in the series that Brian mentioned, the prayers of the faithful. Just two left. We've had the prayer of a church, the prayer of a widow, the prayer of a child, the prayer of a father, and the prayer of a leader. But I want to consider this morning the prayer of a sufferer. The prayer of a sufferer. The church at Corinth were suffering. 
They were a broken fellowship. In a previous visit, Paul had come up against some pretty strong opposition, those who declared the apostle to be unworthy of his title because he had suffered too much. How could an ambassador for Christ fall into so much trial? How could a servant of God be so weak as to be taken by the enemy? There were many in the church who claimed his life was inconsistent with his teaching. And even went as far as to say that his words were contemptible. And as such, the church was completely divided. And really, most of what Paul shares in 2 Corinthians is his justification for suffering. He encourages sound-thinking believers to see God's hand in it, and he challenges the negative influencers to consider Christ's example of it. Suffering is not a sign of failure. Suffering is not a prohibition for service. More often than not, suffering is an opportunity for God to reveal himself to you, to the church, to the world, in a way that he hasn't before. And even if sometimes that suffering is of our own making, God is right there, wanting to make himself known. Paul begins this letter by referencing the grace and the peace of God. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are at Achaia, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace to understand that even faithful followers suffer. That was important. That was the one thing the church couldn't understand. Even faithful followers suffer. And peace to bring comfort whenever they do. Grace and peace. The God of comfort brings peace. That's the first thing I want to leave with you this morning. The God of comfort brings peace. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Do you notice there he's the source of the comfort? The source of the comfort is God. He is the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. Do you know this broken fellowship had likely taken comfort in their status? They were part of an exciting new movement, a, a band of Christians standing for God. They'd have taken comfort in unity. It was them against the world. When they looked at the, the people outside who didn't have what they have, they'd have taken comfort in unity. They'd have been comforted in their own strength. In chapter 2, Paul recalls how he left Corinth with heaviness because of their strong rejection. And we can take comfort in our pride, thinking, well, you can't come into my life and tell me what to do. I'm the one in control here. I'm the fighter. I don't need your help because I am strong. We are strong. That was their attitude to Paul whenever he tried to reason with them. But it was clear their strength was being eroded. Their unity destroyed and their status, their reputation was in tatters. And maybe they couldn't see it. But all they were trusting in was falling apart around them. 
It was falling away. And they'd no peace. They'd no contentment. They'd no rest. They were broken. But Paul lovingly shares that suffering doesn't have to leave you broken. It doesn't have to leave you empty. Suffering can bring peace. But you won't have peace if you're resting in things that won't last. You won't have peace if you're clinging to things that can change. You won't have peace if you're relying on your own strength. The source of true comfort is God. Only God. What are you resting in this morning? What is your comfort? Are you fearful for your family? Commit them to God. Are you worried for the health of a friend? Place them into the hands of God. Are you burdened for souls? Be comforted in the will of God. Financial strain, lustful thoughts, damaged friendships. Are you carrying all of those burdens on your own back? Relying on your strength to fight them? It won't last. Your strength isn't enough. And that doesn't make you a weak person or a bad Christian. It makes you human. Because the only certainty in life is God. He's the only permanent fixture. The only thing that always remains no matter what happens around us. He's the source of true comfort. But look at the scale of true comfort. Verse 3 says that he is the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. That means there's no true comfort without him. It also means that when we depend on him, when we mentally, spiritually, and emotionally rest ourselves fully in the care of our Heavenly Father, we don't need another comfort. We don't need things to be in a perfect way for us to be content. Because he is the God of all comfort. We can face even the unthinkable and know that God still has a plan. We can pass through the storm knowing Jesus is there, entirely untroubled and absolutely in control. We can rest entirely in God, knowing that even if our perfect plans fail, and that's hard, but knowing that even if our perfect plans fail, He will still deliver on His promises. And we don't need to work out how. He's the God of all comfort. Paul, in his suffering, could have trusted in the church. But this church would have let him down. He could have depended on his friends. We see them listed at the end of many of his letters. He had many friends, many associates. But in 2 Timothy, we're told that all but a few walked away from him. He could have taken comfort in his health, but at times he was beaten so badly he was left for dead. Paul didn't rest in any of those. He knew that the only immovable, immutable, indestructible, unwavering, and perpetually present fixture was God. The God of all comfort. Maybe here this morning, 
you don't even know him at all. You don't know the God of all comfort. Not only are you not resting in him, you don't know him. You've no relationship with him. That's where you need Jesus. Because when we trust in Jesus for salvation, we know God. And when we know God, we can rest in the God of all comfort for everything. The source of true comfort is God. The scale of true comfort is unlimited. But what about the spread of true comfort? The spread of true comfort. Look at verse 4. It says, The God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. This is the spread of true comfort. That those who have been comforted can in turn comfort others. Child of God, this morning, your experience may be painful, exhausting, distressing. But if at any point you have known and understood something of the comfort of God, then what a blessing you can be to others. Older ladies here who can remember back to the pain of navigating your own children through adolescence and into adulthood and the challenges. You can be a huge blessing to mothers today who are trying to do the same. Folks who are retired, maybe 40, 50 years in secular employment, desperately trying and often failing to stand up for what you believe. Think of the wisdom you can share with the young people trying to do the same. Older men, years in the ministry, decades in in mission, serving the Lord and making mistakes, but learning to trust Him all the way. What an encouragement you could be to those who maybe take the pulpit for the first time or stand up to do a children's talk. Never underestimate the impact of your experience upon others. But we have to be prepared to tell them. We need to spread comfort. But what does that look like? What does it mean to spread comfort? What is comfort? We thought about comfort in terms of a cuddly toy, its stability, its consistency, its reliability, it's always there. The word comfort means so much more. In the Greek, it's the word paraklesis, which in effect is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14. He's called the comforter, the parakletos. It's the same word, the one called to the side of another to be their encourager, to walk with them, to be with them, to encourage them. We're to be encouragers. We're to get alongside each other and encourage each other in the Lord. That's our duty. Of course, encouragement comes in in many forms. Go throw another wee picture up this morning. Some of you will recognize this image from the Bayou Tapestry. For those who don't know, the Bayou Tapestry is a, a, a long linen cloth, I guess. It's about twice the length of a football pitch, but it's been meticulously embroidered 
with the story of William the Conqueror who became king after the Battle of Hastings. And it features a running commentary in Latin all the way along the top of it. So it describes what's actually unfolding in the pictures. In this particular section, the words you see along the top actually translate as Bishop Odo comforts his troops. Bishop Odo comforts his troops. Bishop Odo was half-brother to William, and although he didn't fight, his job was to get alongside the men as they went into battle. He was to go with them, to encourage them, and to comfort them. But notice how he's doing it. That's him in the middle. He's not giving them a pat on the back. He's not high-fiving them. He's not reading them scripture. He's holding a club. See, the word comfort didn't always mean to hug or to feel cuddly. It meant to admonish, to correct, to strongly implore. That was the role of Bishop Odo. And isn't that the work of the Spirit as well? Not only are we comforted by the Spirit, we're corrected by the Spirit. Folks, we are to be a comforter to those who are in trouble, in any trouble. And sometimes, oftentimes, probably most of the time, that will be with tenderness. It'll be with gentleness. It'll be with softness. But there will be times, and this is where we need discernment, there will be times when we have to be a little bit more direct, a little bit more corrective. And that can be hard. Because our pride doesn't welcome outside help. Not when we're in suffering. Not when we're in pain. Our pride doesn't want correcting. But maybe sometimes we do need to swallow our pride and acknowledge the experience and the wisdom and the discernment of another believer speaking with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We need to spread the comfort of God. The God of comfort brings peace. Sometimes he does so with correction. Secondly, we see not only does the God of comfort bring peace, the certainty of comfort brings hope. The certainty of comfort brings hope. There's a certainty to our suffering. And that certainty is that our suffering is known by the Lord. Verse 5 says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth in Christ. When we suffer as the children of God, we suffer in Christ. You might never have told another soul about your inner turmoil, your deepest fears, or that unsettling feeling that you have about work or about money or about health. But the Lord knows it. Because when we suffer, we suffer in Christ. And when we are comforted, we're comforted in Christ. As believers, our emotions are so deeply connected to our spiritual walk. When you're weighed down, when you're heavy with burden, it affects your walk. It might not be visible when you come into the church or engage with your family, and maybe you've even made every effort to make sure it's not visible. But it's affecting your walk. 
and it's known to the Lord. He knows it. And surely that in itself is a comfort. Your suffering is known, but your suffering also has purpose. Verse 6 says, whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Your suffering has purpose. It's for consolation and salvation. It's for your comfort and your deliverance. The purpose of suffering is that we might know the comfort and the deliverance of the Lord. It would be so much nicer to just know all that without the pain, wouldn't it? It would be easier if we didn't have to go through any unpleasantness to know the Lord better. If you remember the first time you ever received your wages for working, it was different. It was different than just somebody giving you money just because. Because you'd earned it. You'd worked hard to get that reward. A little child coming into the world, it's a joyous experience, something you wouldn't change for anything but the pain. The emotional turmoil, the physical exertion that many mothers experience to bring their children into the world, yet almost immediately it gives way to joy. A joy so much sweeter than just being handed a random child. Because of the pain, because of the emotional connection. And I've had conversations with Ian, as I'm sure many of you had, about some of his endurance running. Six hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, just running and running, thinking you're going to break, thinking you're going to give up, thinking you're going to explode. But the outpouring of emotion the moment you cross the line, that's not something you can manufacture. You can't just wake up in the morning and feel like that. To fully know the value of deliverance, to fully appreciate the finish line, you need to endure the pain. That's why your experience can be such a blessing to others, to have come through the pain and to know that He is the God of all comfort. The comfort of God is effectual in the enduring of sufferings and the deliverance of God so much sweeter knowing that you've suffered. Your suffering is known. Your suffering has purpose. And thirdly, your suffering guarantees comfort. This is a promise. Your suffering guarantees comfort. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Our hope or our expectation of you is steadfast. It's certain. It's fixed. Knowing that as ye are partakers of the suffering, so shall ye also be of the consolation. As ye are partakers of the suffering, so shall ye also be of the consolation, of the comfort. The certainty of comfort brings hope. Paul was assuring these Corinthian believers that although they were suffering, they would be assured of the consolation of God. It was guaranteed. God wasn't stepping back from them. He wasn't waiting until the dust had settled or until they worked out all their problems. As certain as the suffering was, so too was the comfort of God. And sometimes that's hard for us to see, particularly when the comfort is in the form of rebuke or instruction. But just like Bishop Odo, God has drawn alongside. 
He's right there. He's right there in battle, waiting and wanting you to cast your care upon him, like Ian shared with the boys and girls. Cast your care upon him, for he careth for you. He's right there. He's ever-present, ever-loving, ever-gracious, ever-merciful in your time of need. Sometimes we can't see him. Sometimes we don't want to see him. But that doesn't mean he isn't there. As certain as your suffering is, so too is the comfort and the consolation of the Lord. The God of comfort brings peace. The certainty of comfort brings hope. And finally, the need for comfort brings prayer. The need for comfort brings prayer. Paul shares very personally of an experience in verse 8 where he and Timothy were fearful in Asia. We're not really told what happened, but it brought the apostle to his knees. He says we were pressed above measure in so much that we despaired even of life. And the thing that brought him comfort, the thing he references as helping him and helping them in that dark and fearful experience were the prayers of God's people. Verse 11, ye also helping together by prayer for us. The need for comfort brings prayer. But when you're in the middle of difficulty or finding it hard to rest in God, those are the times that can be difficult to pray. It's not always because you don't want to. It can be because you simply can't. It's like we're inside a metal box with no signal to the outside world, no reception. I'm pretty sure that's how it felt to Paul and Timothy. The writing was on the wall. The sentence of death was upon them, but they knew. In that moment, they knew the prayers of God's people. They knew there were believers upholding them in prayer. And you might not want to share your innermost fears the exact nature of your circumstances or the specific burden weighing heavy on your heart. And that's okay. You can still ask for prayer. The person beside you or in the row in front of you could still be praying for you. I mean, like, why not? After the service, lean across and say, would you pray for me? Can you pray for me this week? I think it's going to be a tough one. Why not? Why not text a Christian friend and say, could you please pray for me? Can't tell you exactly what's going on, but I need to know you're praying. If you are asked to pray, then take it seriously. Somebody's coming to you really probably quite reluctantly and saying, can you pray for me? Take it seriously. Don't press them in the details. Don't fob them off. Just pray for them. And keep praying for them. Bring them to the Lord every day. You don't need to know the specifics because the Lord knows them. Paul came to realize the impact of prayer on his behalf. Just as we close, I want to share very briefly three things that Paul experienced about the comfort of God and the prayers of the people in the midst of his suffering. Firstly, he realized his reliance upon God. Verse 9 says, We had a sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. 
which raiseth from the dead. Paul came to realize that all true comfort came from the Lord. But what did it take for him to realize that? It took all other hope to be taken away. Isn't that so often the case that the Lord would need to strip all other hope, all other logical explanation, all other sources of comfort away from us to realize that He alone can be trusted? Why does it often take that? Why can we not learn to lean on Him until we absolutely have to? That He alone never changes, that He alone has the power to deliver us. And maybe that's the lesson that He's teaching you right now. Trust me first. Trust me foremost. Trust me only. For only God has the power to deliver us from our tribulations. He realized his reliance upon God. Secondly, he experienced belief and deliverance. He says that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raiseth the dead, who delivered us, verse 10, from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Past, present, and future all there. Our God has delivered. He is delivering. And he will deliver us. And if you're saved this morning, you can look back at a time when the Lord graciously delivered you out of your sin. Saved you by his power. And then you can look forward to a time when he will deliver you out of this world, this weary, worn, and sinful world, and take us to glory, to the glory of heaven, to be with him forever. And I think we can quite easily look at both of those. So why then is it so hard for us to believe that he can deliver us now, in the present? Why do we cling to those burdens and almost try and keep them from Him? He wants to deliver us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to encourage us. But we have to let Him in. We have to rest in Him. Cling to Him. And depend on Him for deliverance. Paul realized his reliance. He believed in his deliverance. And lastly, he continued in his service. Verse 11 says, Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the, gift for the gift bestowed upon us, by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Paul came to realize that there was still work to be done. That moment might have seemed like the end of his ministry might have seemed like the end of his service. But God still had work for him to do. That gracious gift of service had not been taken away, and the Lord delivered them back into action. These burdens that we carry can be crippling. They can damage our motivation. They can destroy our confidence. They can sideline us from service. Just because it feels like the end right now doesn't mean the Lord is finished with you. See, Paul could see the impact that his experience would have on the people that had been praying for him. The joy of knowing that the Lord had heard their prayers and delivered Paul and Timothy back into service. A testimony of his grace. A witness to his power, abundantly evident 
in the lives of these two servants. And maybe right now all you can see are barriers, restrictions, the fears, the worries, the what-ifs. But the Bible assures us this morning that the God of all comfort is there, waiting to encourage you, waiting to instruct you, waiting to deliver you, waiting to bring you hope. And if you're struggling to pray for yourself, then make sure others are praying for you. We need the power of prayer. And when you can pray, do so in the loving arms of the God of all comfort. Rest in Him. Commit your worries to Him. Commit your fears to Him. Commit your children to Him, your finances to Him, your marriage to Him. Commit your service to Him. Knowing that the God of deliverance wants to use our lives as a visible token of His grace. He wants us to serve Him. He's the Father of mercies. That doesn't mean one shot and you're out. He's the Father of all mercy. He's the God of all comfort. Let's lean on Him for everything. And place everything into his hands. Amen. I'm going to close, please, with a, a hymn. Uh, 516. Um, get up on the screen in a wee second. If you've got the book, you can look it up. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. And this is a challenge. Particularly if you feel like there's something just keeping you back from the Lord. But let's pray. As, even as we sing. Let's sing with prayerful hearts that he would encourage us to do that. Uh, we'll only sing the first and the last again, please, of 516.